From WLRN News in Miami, this is Detention by Design. I'm Danny Rivero. Just a warning about this episode is that it does contain a discussion about suicide. If you or anyone you know needs help, you can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling or texting the number 988. That's 988. At the end of the last episode, we met Abel Jean-Simon Zephyr, who at the age of 16 saw many friends around him getting arrested in the wave of political repression in Haiti that marked the beginning of the reign of Baby Doc, who had just inherited the presidency from his father, Papa Doc. And Zafir's journey will help take us into the very beginning of immigration detention as we know it in this country. That journey starts on a hot day in August of 1973, when Zafir and 61 other Haitians left Port-au-Prince and took to the seas. I, I was a very young guy. They were the adult who managed the, the voyage or the, the trip. Uh, when we left Haiti, we went to Cuba. Uh, we went to the place named Punta Maisi. The very eastern tip of Cuba, less than 100 miles from Haiti at its closest point. It's about one day in the sea. We left at night and then we arrived in Cuba the following night. When we get there, because of the reef, we waited to the daylight and the Cuban military came. They approached or questioned us and they pulled us to the port. The group is taken to land in Cuba, but the communist government really doesn't want the refugees to stay there. They do give them food and housing for about a month. And in the meantime, the Cuban authorities repair the boat. The fix our boat. Which was damaged on the voyage. They were in the east side of Cuba for almost a month. And then one day, the Cuban officials announce that it's time for the Haitians to leave the island. And the government loads up the ships with Haitians and tows them out to sea to continue their journey to the final destination, Miami. I remember vividly that day. It was plain daylight, and the, the, the Cuban military escorted us to international water, and they said that basically you and your own, they cannot go any farther. They have to go back to Cuba. And then we were on our own. Zafir remembers that the seas were calm and the sun was shining. Years later, the Straits of Florida and the northern edge of the Caribbean Sea would become known as treacherous bodies of water. But that day, luck was with them. It wasn't long. And then we saw a small boat very far away approaching us. And they kept coming. And we see garbage, we say, well, and somebody say, we're not too far from land, you know. And say, there's something is coming to us. What it was, it was a Cuban fisherman in Miami. And they approached, they see our boat, and they keep approaching us. They approaching us, they saw us. And, and I remember the name, it was a huge Cuban guy. His name Pepe. Captain Pepe. He said, Pepe, he's like, Chano, thank you. He's talking, they, they asked him, where are we going? He said, where you are? I said, we are Haitian. We are going to United States. 
They say, why? They say, well, we fled Duvalier. The journey up to this point only took about a day. A few other fishing boats pull up, and the fishermen are mostly Cubans living in Miami. And these Cuban fishermen give water to the passengers on the boat and make sure everyone's all right. You know, the Cubans are familiar with Haitian. They know who we, who we are. And then they call U.S. Coast Guard for us. And they tell us they cannot take us from the boat until they get the permission from the United States government. This journey that Zafir took from Haiti to Florida by boat was among the first of what would soon be a steady stream of Haitians fleeing to the U.S. by sea. But as Zafir sat on the ship waiting to hear back from the Coast Guard, there were literally no protocols for what to do with refugees like himself. Ira Kurzban is an immigration attorney who's been involved with major refugee policy cases since the 1970s. A boat would come in to Miami and somebody would call the State Department and say, what do you want me to do with these people? Because our only legal obligation was under something called the Convention and uh, Protocol relating to the status of refugees. It was an international convention we signed, but we had no procedures, we had no regulations, we had nothing, no statute. The only thing that international convention did was basically acknowledged that the U.S. had a moral responsibility to refugees. It did not include any actual procedures. The journalist Kim Ives, who we met in part one, is an American reporter who's been reporting on Haiti since the 1970s. And he actually bore witness to boats leaving Haiti in the later parts of the decade. He also witnessed boats coming in once they were landing in the U.S. The, the boats were being organized regularly in the Northwest primarily, and they would leave. There were all kinds of uh, sort of networks of people who would bring you up to a given spot. You'd pay the captain who was going to take you, and you'd set off onto the seas. And usually they'd go up through the Bahamas, and then you'd get more or less to uh, Bimini or uh, maybe uh, Grand Bahama, and then you'd take you know, a dash across the, the Straits of Florida there to get into um, some beach. As Captain Pepe and the Cubans waited to hear back from the U.S. government to see if Zafir and his fellow passengers would be allowed into the U.S., Zafir wasn't sure how it would all work out. And then there was some good news. The federal government gave them the thumbs up. They could come to the U.S. They give okay. And, and there was a big U.S. military boat, the Coast Guard, not approached us and with the Cuban to assist them. And we were okay. They, they were going to take us in the military boat. I said, no, the, the, the water was good. And, and, and they tell us we better off. We stay with the Cuban, but they're watching us. We can see ship not too far from us and the Cubans. Uh, they continue to fish for three days. They will stay with them, eating, you know, and relax. And then after that, when they finished, they brought us to Miami. So, after about a month in Cuba, two days traveling at sea, and after three days spent fishing with Cubans in the Florida Straits, Zafir and the rest of the Haitians are brought to Miami by this entourage of fishing boats as the Coast Guard watches over. 
Once they're on land, the federal government interviews all of the passengers, and Captain Pepe gives his statement. So far, so good. They took us to federal court as a normal procedure. Then the judge, there was a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. Then he asked us, and what is the reason we came to the United States? We stated very clearly, we left for political reason, and but it was a mixed message between, not everybody said the same thing, but primarily most of us asked for political asylum. They said, since we agreed to ask for political asylum, they cannot release us, and therefore they were going to send us to jail. Uh, and then they took us to Immokali. Immokali, Florida. It's a tiny town on the edge of the Everglades area in southwest Florida, surrounded by agriculture and swamplands. It's mostly known now as a place that grows tomatoes for the rest of the U.S. during the winter months. Super remote, even today. More than an hour and a half from the population centers of South Florida's east coast. And back then, it was even more remote and hard to access. And so, Zafir and the other Haitians who came on the boat with him are sent to this little jail that was originally built to house people facing a range of crimes. Shoplifting, robbery, murder. We began to realize something went wrong. And um, what we think that if you came to a country, United States or wherever, as a, you left for persecution, you asked for political asylum, because your, your government is a repressive government, the solution is not to put you in jail. I don't know how to call it, but it's not fair. To, you flee in a dictatorship and you came to a country seeking freedom, the next time they just put you and throw you in jail again. The federal government does offer Haitians a way out of the jail, even though practically it was impossible. They could pay bond to get out and wait on the outside for their asylum cases to be heard. Pleading for asylum, by the way, is basically convincing the federal government that you are, in fact, a real, true-to-life refugee who deserves legal protection in the U.S. Because bad things would happen to you if you returned to where you came from. But if the Haitians couldn't pay the bond money, which they couldn't, the government would hold them in jail until their political asylum case was processed. And once their cases were processed, odds were they would be deported back to the dictatorship in Haiti. While Zafir was in jail in Immokalee, another group of Haitians who came through the Bahamas was also brought into the facility. And the number of Haitians in the jail starts to increase. Zafir remembers the majority of people in the jail being Black, in a part of Florida with relatively few Black residents. When we arrived in Immokalee, and immigration keeps saying it's for a couple of days, they are waiting for Washington. We began to consult it among ourselves. We say, what is the situation that is going to be two to three months and they're waiting, they're waiting, what are they waiting for? Some of the Haitians among them are students and avid readers that follow international politics and current events very closely. And Zafir says this helps shape the discussions that happen in the jailhouse. We were debating. I remember one of the guys, he was a student, and he knew about international law, and we questioned the decision, the fact that U.S. immigration kept us 
in jail to see whether or not it is a legal procedure based on the international law. And as we review, we debating in uh, among ourselves, we, we concluded it was illegal. The group concludes that it's illegal because of international conventions that the U.S. signed about protecting the rights of refugees seeking asylum. But remember, at the time, there were no actual laws governing this in the U.S. So in practice, it was pretty ambiguous. Immigration officials had a lot of room to interpret things however they saw fit. And in this case, those immigration officials chose to throw Haitians in jail instead of releasing them into the community. The Haitians conclude that this is wrong, it's illegal, and it's being used as a tool. Is it we did think they would discourage us to leave? What Zafira is describing here in Immokalee, Florida, is the very beginnings of the practice of immigration detention as we know it in this country. Overcrowded detention centers filled with people trying to plead for asylum. This is where it starts in Immokalee, Florida. So very quickly, all these stories start to come out about what's happening in Immokalee. Brianna Nofel is a researcher at the College of William and Mary in Virginia, where she specializes in the history of immigration detention. There's complaints about things like uh, inadequate food, inadequate medical care. Um, at some points, Immokalee is overcrowded, which is, you know, anyone who knows this facility is kind of shocking because they, they typically had very, very few inmates. And the number of patients being held there, it rapidly, rapidly outpaces the number of um, like local offenders. By like 1974, it's like four times more Haitians are being held at Immokalee. The practice of jailing people who are trying to move to the U.S. has been around for a long time. Historically, it happened in particular with Chinese immigrants in the late 1800s. And also in the early 1900s, other major ports of entry, like Ellis Island in New York, saw some immigrants routinely detained for months on end. But in the mid-1950s, this practice was largely abolished. There's this really remarkable speech given by Attorney General Herbert Brownwell in 1955, where he applauds the fact that, quote, practically a 100% reduction has been accomplished in the custody of persons seeking entry. And when the attorney general gave that speech, he brags that only four would-be immigrants were in federal custody across the entire nation in January of 1955. Four. And he says basically eliminating immigration detention was saving the federal government tons of money. What happens in the 1950s is that there's this kind of moral reckoning about the practice of immigration detention. And a bunch of different things catalyze this reckoning. Probably the biggest factor is that the demographics of who is being detained have shifted. The immigrants in detention that are getting a lot of media and a lot of press, um, it's not Chinese immigrants, it's not Mexican immigrants, it's these European immigrants who are being accused of being communists, of having like shadowy political affiliations, and they're often facing these really, really long detentions. The one exception to this reality was alongside the U.S.-Mexico border, where some detention centers had existed since the mid-1900s. 
But these facilities usually held people for just a day or two before the government sent them back across the border to Mexico. So, in the 1970s, Haitians start arriving to Florida by boat. And the government doesn't want to just release them, but they don't really know where to put them for the time being. At least outside of the U.S.-Mexico border, there aren't any immigration detention centers yet. So there aren't any sites that are specifically marked for the incarceration of migrants. So if the U.S. wants to detain someone, they've pretty much got to use their existing carceral infrastructure, which means maybe prisons, but probably more likely jails. Jails, unlike prisons, are built to hold people for brief periods of time, for short sentences, or just as someone waits for trial. They're smaller, more flexible, and they're built to process people coming in and out every single day. And Nofel says this makes jails the go-to solution for a federal government that was in a scramble. So jails can kind of be this multi-purpose space that can serve whatever ends the, the state needs it to serve. And whereas in the 1950s, the federal government cheered the fact that ending immigration detention saved taxpayers a lot of money, now in the early 70s, that argument's flipped on its head. And Washington starts to recruit local jails to hold people who are pleading for asylum as political refugees. They argue that counties are going to be excited about this. This is potentially if you have empty jail space, um, this is this is this could look like easy money. You know, these people aren't even accused of a criminal offense. They are they are potential refugees and will cut you a check. Funding for Detention by Design was made possible by the Shepherd Broad Foundation in honor of its founder, whose immigration story included detention at age 14, but also the warm embrace of the Miami community. In Immokalee, Zafir was waiting for months to see if he could get released. There was hardly any legal representation at the time, hardly any communication with immigration officials. They just felt that they weren't really getting information from anyone. And they felt abandoned in this little jail, completely out of sight, completely out of mind. And so the Haitians decided to do something about it. They settled on a date that's important for the history of the Haitian Revolution, November 18th. That's the day the Haitians won their last battle against the French, a battle that freed Haiti from French colonization and when Haitians became the first enslaved people to free themselves from slavery. It was the culmination of the first successful slave revolt in world history. Haiti became the first black republic. November 18 is a lot fought with the French in Cap Haiti, La Cotapiro, and, and it's going to be a fighting day because what immigration did is not white, and, and um, we're going to free ourselves, we're going to get out from the jail. That day when they bought food, we said we're not eating. We've been waiting for so long, and we asked for political asylum, you have to make up your mind. And by midday, we all we broke the jail, we all went out. This group of Haitian detainees in this tiny jail surrounded by agricultural fields and swamplands, they break out of jail. This, with detainees organizing within the confines of a jail, 
planning hunger strikes, demanding answers about why they're being locked up, it wasn't exactly in the short-term plans for the federal government, when the government was really creating all of this on the fly during the presidency of Republican Richard Nixon. Zafir remembers how this jailhouse revolt went down. There were some materials, wood, big piece of wood, four by four. The, the chair, we throw it, and nobody get hurt. We just break the wall and then, and we walk out. When we, we walk out, we sing, we would stay, they shooting at us. Um, but nobody get hurt. They shoot on the air, and we tell them that we don't intend to escape. To feel we, we, we just think that it is unfair to keep us illegally in the jail. Uh, we want to be free in the proper way. And then they call the sheriff, then we stay outside. They, they keep shooting at, uh, on the air to prevent our escape. But the intention was very clear. We, we know if we escape, it's going to be a problem because we want to make a political statement, especially it was a day of revolt in Haiti. So we're going to revolt the same way we revolt against the French to free ourselves from slavery. This spirit of Haitian rebellion against the French colonists, this history of rebellion in search of justice, will continue to guide Haitian refugees in the many battles that will come. So in Immokalee, Zafir and dozens of fellow Haitians have broken out of the jail. And a different group of Haitians were detained after coming from the Bahamas. They don't break out, but they are organizing a kind of rebellion inside the jailhouse. They're demanding that someone, anyone of authority, explain to them why they're being jailed instead of released into the community. It's a really remarkable moment. We see activism in a lot of forms. There's um, there's letter writing campaigns, there's there's kind of uprisings within the jail itself, and there's these hunger strikes. All of this is really bad news for the local immigration service, because this is not what they want. They kind of want to be able to do this process quietly. And these acts of resistance um, from detainees threaten their ability to, to do it quietly. After the uprising ends, the Haitians go back into the jail. And... There's this one Cuban officer who's from the eastern part of the island where Haitian Creole is spoken. Zafir says this officer gave the detainees a very stern talking to. He said, look, what you did is very bad. You broke the jail. We cannot keep you in Miami. You have two options. And either you go back to Haiti or you go back, we'll take you to Texas. So that was the option. And we decided, so we go into Texas until Washington decides they don't want to release you now. That's basically it. At night, the, the, there were several bosses came to get us. By then, they removed everybody from 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 Imokale. They they took us. Brianna Nofel says when the Haitians started to organize from that jailhouse in Imokale, the federal government starts to use transfers from one jail to another as a real tactic for keeping a lid on the fact that immigration detention was once again happening in the United States. 
basically in the dead of night, they go to Immokalee, they take these people out in a pretty violent way, and they put them on these buses and planes to other jails. So most of these jails are further away. Um, Four of them are in central Florida. And then they also send a decent number of them to Texas, where the Immigration Service has a facility. So in early 1974, Abel Jean-Simon Zephyr is sitting in a federal detention center in El Paso, Texas, on the U.S.-Mexico border. He says it was a pretty uneventful place. The Haitians and some Mexicans play soccer outside, then come inside to sleep. And by now, he and his fellow Haitians have been incarcerated for months in Texas, plus the months they spent in the Florida jail. And this is when a young guy And Deville kill himself. A man named Turin Deville had been locked up with them in Immokalee, but he was in the separate group of Haitians who came from the Bahamas. After the uprising, Deville was first sent to a jail in the Tampa area. But as he faced a final deportation order back to Haiti, Deville was transferred to the Dade County Jail in Miami. And it was there where he took his own life. It's a constant threat. You will be deported. You are economic refugee, you will be deported. You will be deported. No matter how good your story is. And Turin Deville, who was a young guy, three months later, is the same story. Nothing happened. And he decided to end his life. He hang himself inside the jail. Then, it was a bombshell. The officer in charge of the facility in El Paso, Texas, calls the Haitian detainees into a room and gives them the news. And while he's talking to them, other officers come in. Zafir describes it as an incredibly humane moment between the Haitians who were in detention and the people in charge of their detention. And he tell us, look, I know who you are, I know why you're here, but that is something happened, it's not acceptable, and I don't want you to do that. United States is a great country. You left, you're looking for freedom. Don't do that. That was a waste day. Because we used to eat together, see him, is a young guy. Because of bad foreign policy, and he hang himself. They pray with us to give us hope. And they told us outside in Houston, there are a lot of refugees from other countries, and they're doing okay. Lonely, there is a hope. One day you will be free. You will be free someday. In the days that would come, Turin DeVille's name could be seen on the handwritten signs of protesters. His suicide in the Miami jailhouse really started to wake up activism and social consciousness about what was happening with Haitian migrants. The Friendship Baptist Church in today's Little Haiti area of Miami 
held a funeral service for him, printed out pamphlets about his case, and drew attention to the fact that he was fleeing political persecution and arbitrary detention in Haitian jails, only to find himself detained in jails in the United States. They quoted testimony he gave to immigration services, to which he said, quote, If the regime falls today, I'm ready to go back. Otherwise, I will not go back there. If the United States refuses to help me, send me to Africa. In the pamphlet, the historically black church declares Turin DeVille an honorary eternal member of Miami's black community. If you or anyone you know needs help, you can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling or texting the number 988. That's 988. Next time on Detention by Design, the boats keep coming, the jails start to fill up, and the public starts to pay attention. One of my most vivid memories was the detention of a 14-year-old girl in the West Palm Beach jail alone uh, without her family. Um, and uh, so it was kind of emblematic of the policy, which was how do we discourage Haitians from coming? Detention by Design is a production of WLRN News. It's edited by Alicia Zuckerman. We also had editing help from Tracy Egbass and Tim Paget. Thanks, too, to the rest of the WLRN newsroom. Fact-checking by Amy Tardiff. Jacqueline Charles is our consultant. Engineering and sound design by Merritt Jacob. Detention by Design is reported and produced by me, Danny Rivero. 